Hello there and welcome. I'm Cleon and Ian Lone, producer of the RT Radio 1 Davis Now Lectures. The series entitled Engaging Spaces, first broadcast in 2002, explores the timely subject of the nature of space in our lives, how we occupy space and are engaged by it. Here from that series is the lecture The Rural Idyll, which contrasts the rural idyls of more recent times with those put forth by classical Greeks, the Romantics and the builders of early Irish nationhood, such as Thomas Davis himself. The lecturer is Dr Mary Cawley of the National University of Ireland, NUI Galway. Essentially, the Lake Isle of Inishfree describes a rural idyll, an idealised, rustic way of life. Yeats was living in London when he wrote the poem in 1890. In yearning for a simple pastoral lifestyle as a retreat from the city, he was following a long-established tradition in literature and art. The idyll is thought to have had its origins in the Hellenic period of Greek civilization between about 323 BC and 30 AD. As urbanization has taken place throughout history, townspeople have tended to become physically and spiritually isolated from nature. In reaction, it seems, nature and rural society have been elevated to ideal status. The literary and artistic vision of nature has changed over time. In the early 18th century, nature became tamed as great estates were landscaped. In art, the peasantry often appeared as minuscule figures engaged in their daily tasks amid picturesque expanses of woods, rivers and lakes. Works by the Irish artist Thomas Roberts provide such views of a tranquil nature, in which farm workers play a barely identifiable role. In 1770, Oliver Goldsmith documented the change that was taking place in the deserted village. But times are altered. Trade's unfeeling train usurp the land and dispossess the swain. Along the lawn where scattered hamlets rose, unwieldy wealth and cumbrous pomp repose. The Romantic movement of the 19th century valued wilder landscapes, mountains and moorland with extreme weather conditions, storms, mist, raging torrents. The peasant acquired a more realistic but nobler status in both art and literature. Such sentiments informed the late 19th century Gaelic revival, the rural west of Ireland became a cultural heart for the revivalists. The lives and lore of country people, and especially of Irish speakers in Gaeltacht areas, were recorded, collected and archived for posterity. Early collectors included Douglas Hyde and Lady Augusta Gregory. Lady Gregory, Yeats and Singh dramatised rural life. Singh, in the playboy of the Western world, exposed the underlying violence that was present. The establishment of a National Folklore Commission in 1935 provided an institutional context for the work of folklore collecting. During the early decades of the 20th century, painters Paul Henry, Sean Keating and Charles Lamb found artistic inspiration in the rural West. Yeats's idyll may be viewed as that of the patrician, who could aspire to live in glorious isolation in a bee-loud glade. Eamon de Valera had a more bucolic view of rural Ireland. 
His St. Patrick's Day speech of 1943 is often cited as presenting the idyllic version of the new state. Throughout history, the public expression of self-conscious sentiments about nature and life in the countryside has been the preserve of a privileged minority. Yet consciousness of a rural idyll is not limited to the privileged few. From the distance of space and time, rural Ireland became elevated to the status of an idyll for emigrants throughout the world and particularly for their descendants. An image of a place that time forgot emerged and was nurtured by Hollywood films such as John Ford's The Quiet Man. The pastoral idyll continues to find expression in the contemporary countryside in a number of ways. In the visual appearance of the landscape, patrons of land use, in the re-emergence of small-scale food and handcraft production, in the presence of people who seek a refuge from an increasingly pressurised life in towns and cities. The pastoral is also manipulated in the marketing of products and services, tourism being a notable example. The idyll might be said to be enjoying a renaissance, so let's start by asking why it has re-emerged. The answer to the why rests in large part in the meaning of the idyll. In today's Ireland, it may be seen as a desire to protect and reinstate nature. It's a counterpoint to the growing tide of urban influence. Interest in the rural is also associated with changing consumer preferences and lifestyles. Accession to the then EEC in 1973 marked a major watershed for Irish agriculture. From the foundation of the state until the 1960s, farming methods and output had changed only slowly. During the 1960s, as part of a national policy of economic development, output increased and advances in methods of production took place. From 1973 on, the pace of change accelerated rapidly in response to the opportunities and constraints associated with the common agricultural policy. Survival and success depended ultimately on the capacity to capitalise, mechanise, intensify and specialise. Farming was literally transformed. Instead of being a way of life, dominated by middle-aged farmers, it became an economic activity for a gradually diminishing number of younger, profit-oriented agriculturalists. The number of farms was almost halved between 1970 and 2001, from 280,000 to 146,000, and further decline is anticipated. The Chagosk National Farm Survey of 2001 showed that only around one quarter of farm families were dependent solely on an income from agriculture. Most of the other three quarters received part of their income from off-farm work or from state transfers of various kinds. The traditional regional patrons of land use have remained relatively stable, but greater concentration and specialisation take place. Agricultural processing has become capitalised and concentrated in the hands of a limited number of companies. The fate of rural creameries illustrates this very clearly. There were almost 200 creameries in 1966. Now, as a result of amalgamation, six major companies and cooperatives dominate milk processing. Three are international players. 
this capitalization and industrialization of agricultural production and processing parallels what happened in manufacturing industry during the early decades of the 20th century. Family farms survived the reorganisation of the 1970s and the 1980s, if in reduced numbers. Family craft businesses, by contrast, had for the most part died out decades earlier, as cheaper, mass-produced imports replaced handcrafted items. Carpentry survived as an adjunct to the building and construction industry more than as a handcraft, but most other trades had declined. Weaving, lace-making and knitting survived primarily in the Geltup, where contract work continued for external agents. New markets for handcrafts were, however, beginning to emerge in the 1980s in reaction to mass production. Demand for specialised niche products as personal statements of style and discrimination grew. For example, oatmeal soap, designer knitwear, pine kitchen furniture. Changing tastes had important implications for handcraft production. Concern was growing also about the implications of intensive farming for human health, the landscape and its flora and fauna. New interests were kindled in the quality of the physical environment as a residential and recreational space and place of food production. These changes in attitudes and behaviour represent a transition from mass consumption to niche consumption. Let's now consider how this change has helped to recreate a rural idyll. The over-intensive use of agricultural land during the 1970s and the 1980s resulted in problems of having to store surpluses. There were also high environmental costs, resulting from the heavy use of fertilisers and insecticides and the disposal of growing amounts of animal waste. Concern arose internationally about the loss of wildlife habitats and the reduced biodiversity of ecosystems. A range of environmental legislation and directives was introduced at international and EU levels. Ireland became a signatory to these. There are now more than 1.6 million hectares of land in the state designated for protection, either as habitats for flora and fauna or because of their geological interest. These are natural heritage areas, special areas of conservation and special protected areas. They include large expanses of the western coast, uplands and peat bogs. Their conservation serves to maintain the open bogland and mountainous landscapes, the idyllic west of Ireland, as depicted in late 19th century and early 20th century art. The Rural Environmental Protection Scheme has also been instrumental in the restoration of traditional farming landscapes in Ireland. Known as REPS, the scheme was introduced as part of the reform of the Common Agricultural Policy in 1992. It was designed to reduce farm pollution, extensify production and maintain and enhance the natural environment. It also aims to provide opportunities for public access and leisure. Payments are made to those who comply with the scheme. There has been a high uptake of reps in western counties where the traditional methods of low-intensity beef and sheep production aligned well with its requirements. 
The visible impacts of reps in the countryside include the restoration of stone walls and farm buildings and the maintenance of boundary drains. All of these contribute to a more traditional enclosed farming landscape. This patchwork of family farms with stone walls, clay enclosures and hawthorn hedges is also part of the rural idyll. But the reproduction of a more traditional rural aspect through reps is not without problems. These relate partly to the cost of having the agri-environmental plan prepared and partly to the bureaucracy of complying with its provisions. The issue of access for leisure purposes promoted by reps has been a matter of concern for some farmers. They may not reap any financial benefit from the visitors and if gates are left open by unthinking hikers, livestock may roam onto public roads. Organic methods of farming are sometimes associated with reps. Organic farming has been introduced during recent decades, in part with support from the EU and the Irish government. It promotes benign relationships with the environment through the cultivation of land or rearing of livestock without using artificial fertilisers and pesticides. Instead, crop and livestock rotations are used to maintain fertility and to control weeds, pests and disease. This is often a lifestyle choice, inspired by a desire for self-sufficiency, rejection of the urban and concerns relating to food quality and personal well-being. Organic methods of production are labour-intensive, but the prices obtained are usually higher than for conventional produce. Specialist greengrocers and some supermarkets stock organic produce to meet a growing consumer demand. More generally, producers sell directly to consumers, in street markets or through door-to-door sales. The exchange relationship becomes personalised. Trust is established. Knowing the producer and knowing that the producer shares similar concerns relating to methods of food production are crucial in the pursuit of quality. The transition to organic production is both time-consuming and initially, at any rate, costly. To qualify for the officially licensed organic symbol, a plan must be drawn up and a period of at least two years must be allowed for the necessary conversion. The high quality of the natural ingredients used is also a feature of some small rural food businesses. Wild salmon and trout, milk and cheese from cows grazed on semi-natural grasslands and organically produced fruit are promoted as marks of distinction. Official processing standards are complied with, but the skills of the producer and the locally available raw materials confer highly prized characteristics. Sales often occur at the farm, smokery or workshop or in street markets and hark back to a pre-industrial age. The quest for a niddle also underlies some of the changes that have taken place in the composition and distribution of the Irish rural population over the past three decades. The early 1970s were years of rapid demographic growth. The national population grew by more than 1.5% per year, far in excess of the increases in most other European countries. Suburbs expanded on the fringe of the larger cities and towns 
that had been selected as industrial growth centres. Small towns and villages benefited too. This was also a period when Irish people returned to remoter areas along the west coast to work in newly established industries. Their reasons for returning frequently involved elements of an idyll. The wish to escape from high-density housing, pollution and social pressures on young people in inner-city areas. Retirement migration was made possible by the improved pension benefits available to the post-World War II workforce. Rural residents became a desirable option as standards of housing in the countryside became increasingly aligned with those in towns. Return migration often incorporated a quest for community, familiar, friendly and helpful neighbours. Rural renewal in the open countryside began to taper off during the 1980s, as recession led to renewed emigration. However, many non-farm families achieved their dream of residing in a detached house among green fields within commuting distance of their urban-based employment. Renewed growth in employment accompanied the tiger economy of the 1990s. Urban house prices escalated. Relatively lower cost, but by no means cheap housing, began to be sought in accessible small towns and villages. This movement to the countryside continues, stimulated in large part by considerations of price. Elements of seeking a rural idyll in the guise of a detached house in its own grounds are present. Witness the increasing numbers of planning applications for permission to build. Concerns relating to service provision, road safety and pollution of rivers and lakes have, however, resulted in stricter planning control of one-off housing. Antashka has become increasingly active in landscape protection by appealing certain proposed developments in scenic areas to onboard Planola. Tension is increasing between residential preferences, private property rights and landscape and habitat conservation. The desire for one rural idyll is conflicting with another. Economic growth has also brought the dream of a holiday home in the west of Ireland within the grasp of increasing numbers of people. This trend is not new. Selected areas on the west coast have a long-established tradition of holiday home ownership. Increased affluence during the 1990s meant that more Irish urban dwellers became able to pursue this particular personal rural idyll. Inishon, Guidor and the Rosses in Donegal have become particularly popular with Belfast and Derry residents. Clue Bay in Mayo, Clifton and Roundstone in Galway, Dingle in Kerry, Glengariff and the Bearer Peninsula in Cork all have enclaves of second home owners from elsewhere in Ireland and further afield. The local economy may benefit from sales of land, house construction and repair. Goods and services may be bought by summer and weekend visitors in local shops. Increasingly, however, the cost of land and housing is moving beyond the grasp of young local people. They may have to migrate elsewhere in search of affordable housing. What are called counterculture migrants from Germany, the Netherlands and the UK have moved in relatively small numbers 
to remote western areas since the 1970s. These people seek a simple way of life through organic farming, handcraft production and self-sufficiency. They also seek untamed nature and places with Celtic associations. They may refurbish dilapidated cottages, live under canvas or in mobile homes of various kinds. Such migrants have been particularly active in seeking to conserve the more pastoral characteristics of the places to which they have moved. Common cause has been found with local conservationists in opposing proposals for gold mining on Crowpatrick and for fish farming off the Clare coast at Ballyvaughan, for example. Migratory, so-called eco-warriors, spearheaded the protection of the naturally regenerated oak wood at Coolatton in County Wicklow. The rural idyll is also being offered as an option to urban families by the non-profit Rural Resettlement Organisation based in County Clare. Frequently, these families seek to leave behind unemployment and social deprivation in public housing estates. They seek a better environment for themselves and especially for their children. The dwellings offered for occupation are often in isolated places. A lifeline is extended to the host community. Issues of community are central to the ethos of the organisation. The local population increases, local primary schools are supported and facilitators are used to integrate the newcomers. The move from a highly urbanised environment to the remote rural periphery is not always easy. There are inherent problems relating to the reduced availability of services, the absence of adequate public transport, the absence of a family support network and limited employment opportunities. Nevertheless, numbers of families have made a successful transition from high-rise blocks in Dublin to refurbished farmhouses in the rural west. The pastoral idyll is used in very deliberate ways to promote Irish tourism. In the early decades of the 20th century, the railway companies used Paul Henry's landscapes to promote tours and newly constructed hotels along the west coast. The image of dramatic scenery and a simple yet noble way of life based on land and sea were portrayed on film in The Man of Arran in 1934 and in The Quiet Man in 1952. It's recognised that these films helped to perpetuate a particular image in the Irish-American mind. These landscapes undoubtedly reinforce the tourist's consciousness of the importance of wilderness and wild places, as written about in America by John Muir and Henry Thoreau. Idyll may here be moving into the realm of myth. The dramatic coastal and mountainous scenery of the West Coast is still the single most dominant image in Irish tourism promotion. The attraction of the outdoors is borne out by the most popular activities which tourists engage in while they are in Ireland, visiting heritage sites, walking, angling, golfing, cycling, river cruising. On the current Bird Vulture website, the would-be tourist is invited to live a different life and Ireland is promoted as friendly, beautiful, relaxing. There continues to be an emphasis on the traditional, lobster fishing from a curragh, red-sailed boats off the west coast, line fishing from a clifftop, set dancing outside a thatched pub. But, we must ask, 
How realistic is the idyll? For farmer, fisherfolk or other rural producers, there's a reality of daily life in the countryside. Against this, the idyll may be viewed in a cynical way. You can't eat scenery. Even when scenery is being consumed in the guise of tourism, long-established inhabitants may lack the resources and the know-how to reap the major rewards. They may actually become part of a product that is sold by others. We need to be conscious of the reality of rural life in discussing the idyll as spectacle. In the late 19th century, the west of Ireland was a place of poverty, where recovery was slow in the wake of the famine and land reform was just beginning. When Eamon de Valera made his famous St Patrick's Day speech, more than 20,000 Irish men and women were leaving the country each year and more than 100,000 were dependent on dole payments. He, of course, sought to reverse these trends. Many farm families experienced a sudden decline in their incomes in the late 1970s and a painful process of readaptation during the 1980s. As recession deepened from the mid-1970s on and public expenditure was cut, access to public transport and many other services declined for rural residents. Recent surveys by the ESRI reveal the persistence of poverty among the elderly and the unemployed in small towns and villages. New issues are also emerging, those of housing travellers and integrating migrant workers and asylum seekers. There is therefore a counter-idyll that will increasingly have to be addressed. The rural idyll exists in art and literature as an idealised rustic way of life. It exists in people's minds. It is actively sought and it is also constructed and manipulated for economic purposes. The realisation of the idyll is not accomplished without problems. Let us remember too that for some rural residents the reality of daily life is far removed from the idyll. The real challenge, perhaps, is how we might re-examine the idyll so that the old and the new, the idealised and the real, can coexist side by side. That was Dr Mary Cawley of the National University of Ireland, NUI Galway, and her lecture, The Rural Idyll, from the 2002 RTE Radio 1 Thomas Davis Lecture Series, Engaging Spaces. Go to the Davis Now Lectures website for more information on rte.ie forward slash radio 1 forward slash Davis Now Lectures and find further Davis Now Lectures where you get your podcasts. From me, producer Cleon and Ian Loon, thank you for listening. <laughs>